Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, friends. Thank you so much for joining us here. We know others are trickling in, but we don't want to waste any time. We are here today for the exciting topic from avoiding to embracing Rav Cook and the future of Shemitah. And we are here with a great educator who uh, put out uh, an important book very recently on, on this, um, The Sabbath of the Land. Rabbi Yedidya Julian Sinclair is an economist, writer, and rabbi. He began his career as an economist advising the UK government, was vice president and senior economist at, at Energia Global, an Israeli solar power developer, and today works as an independent consultant on development projects in Africa. <clears throat> Yedidya was senior rabbinic advisor for Hazon, the largest faith-based environmental organization in the US, and campus rabbi at Cambridge University, where he also taught Jewish studies in the Divinity School. He holds degrees from Oxford and Harvard universities and lives with his family in Jerusalem. His book, The Sabbath of the Land, will be published by Magid Books in February, or was published in February. Thank you, Rabbi Didier, for being here. Thank you, Rabbi Shmuley, for that generous introduction. Uh, it's a real honor and delight uh, to be with you and to, uh, to be teaching uh, for Valley Beit Midrash. Um, I'm a great admirer of, uh, of, of what you do. It's just amazing that you don't just walk the walk, but you talk the talk in such a powerful way as well. And uh, it's an honor to be a part of your program. So thank you very much for inviting me. So I've been fascinated, not to say obsessed, by the subject of Shemitah for, for, for many years. Now, I see Shemitah as, as, a, as a profound Jewish source of amazing social, economic, and environmental values. And I think it's one of the most profound resources that we have within Jewish tradition to, uh, to create a, uh, a more just and sustainable world. Having said that, it's a resource which we haven't fully figured out how to use yet, at least not in the modern period. And I wanted to, 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 to bring out this book on Ralph Cook because I think Ralph Cook's Shabbat Haaretz, which I translate it and, uh, and, and, and comment on, is the most important book for understanding why Shemitah is the way it is today, but much more important what Shemitah could be and what it could become in, uh, in the future. Let, let me start off by telling you a little story about, uh, about how I really got engaged in, uh, in, in again in Shemitah. Uh, it was 2007, it was the eve of the Shemitah year in, uh, in Israel. Uh, and somehow I don't remember how exactly, someone from NPR Radio New York called me up and wanted to interview me about the crazy goings on that are happening in Israel at that time about Shemitah. So what was going on? It was, you know, there was a controversy about Shemitah as usual, and uh, some rabbis were arguing with other rabbis, and some people were not eating other people's food and not respecting their hechshas. And it was a, a typical uh, Jewish boigus, and it got out into the world, and into the New York Times, and NPR called, and somehow they got to me, and they wanted to know what was up. So... So yeah, I tried to explain that there's this commandment in the Bible and in the book of Leviticus and not working the land. And only there was this great rabbi in the early 20th century called Rabbi Cook who figured out a way we could do Shemitah today, but not everybody agreed with him. And so that's why people are fighting today. And what she really wanted to know about was like why, she thought it was very funny actually that we were buying most of our, a lot of people were buying most of their vegetables from Gaza from people who'd been shooting rockets at us shortly before. Some reasons she thought that was very amusing and she wanted to understand why, why that was. And I kind of tried to, to explain, well, you know, people don't want to eat things which are growing in the land of Israel. Anyway, obviously I completely failed because uh, to explain it in a way which made any sense to her at all, because uh, she ended up and said something like, well, Rabbi Sinclair, thank that sounds really crazy. Thanks very much for joining us and put the phone down. And 
I can't tell you how embarrassed and humiliated I felt. I felt embarrassed and humiliated for myself that I'd obviously not done a good job of putting this, putting across the beautiful and powerful ideas of Shemitah. But I say I felt embarrassed and uh, humiliated for all of us because, yeah, because somehow the way that Shemitah was being practiced in the world was not, you know, let's not to put too fine a point on it, not a way which was inspiring admiration and respect and Kiddush Hashem amongst people who heard about it, you know, my limitations notwithstanding. And I silently swore to myself the next time would be different. And somehow I would do my little bit to make sure that next time was different. And it turns out that just at that moment, more or less, it wasn't just me, but there were other people, rabbis, thinkers, educators, activists, who were also just reached the end of their tether in terms of, in terms of the shenanigans, the rabbinical shenanigans that characterized Shemitah at the time, and also swore to themselves that it was going to be different and they'd do something to make it different. And the next time it, it really was different. In 2014-15, there was a plethora of grassroots initiatives to actually make the values of Shemitah real in Israeli social, environmental, and economic policy. And I'll come later on to, um, to, to, to some of the things that have happened. And this time we're in the middle of a Shemitah year and it's different again. I mean, it's, it's a different kind of different because uh, you know, we're coming out of, uh, out of COVID and uh, all that craziness. But Shemitah is becoming real in a way that it wasn't before in Israel. And as I said in the title, we're moving from avoiding Shemitah to embracing Shemitah. And, and by the way, I, those, the next last two Shemitah years, I've had the same call and the same interview with NPR both times. I, for some reason, like they, you know, I'm on their, you know, I'm their go-to Shemitah person. And so seven years ago and a few months ago, they called me up and I'm very pleased to be able to tell them that actually it's different now. Now, actually, there are other things going on in Shemitah in Israel today, rather than rabbis arguing with each other and not eating each other's food. But what I want to, 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 to talk about today is how both of these moves of the avoiding and the embracing and the opening up of the possibilities of Shemitah in the future were made possible by, above all, I believe, by, by Rabbi Cook, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, who I'll talk a little bit about, more about him in the course of, uh, of, of the next half an hour or so. Uh, and, and through the remarkable work he did in his book, Shabbat Haaretz, which, uh, which I've tried to, you know, to get across in the version that I've, um, that I've, that I've produced. So, and first of all, briefly, what is, what is Shemitah? So Shemitah is the sabbatical year. Once every seven years, uh, a remarkable change happened in the Bible as far as, uh, um, as, far as what happened in the, uh, in the world of agriculture in the land of Israel. So I'm, uh, I just want to go through with you briefly the three main biblical sources of uh, which talk about Shemitah. Each of them we'll see brings out a different dimension of what Shemitah is. So the first one is from Parshat Mishpatim, the book of Exodus, chapter 23. It says as follows. And I'll read the first, I'll read them mostly in English, but the first line I'll read in Hebrew because it didn't appear in the English. You shall not oppress the stranger because you know the soul of the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, moving to the English, it then says, six years you shall sow your land, gather its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among the people eat of it, and what they leave, let the wild beasts eat. You should do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves, and that's Shemitah, and then moves on to talk about Shabbat. Six days you shall do your work. On the seventh day you shall cease from labor in order that your ox and your ass may rest, and your bondsman and the stranger may be refreshed. So what's going on here? In the, seventh, in, in the seventh year, anybody who owns a field or a vineyard has to open it up. Let anybody come into it, the Torah says, 
animals too, and anybody just eats of what's growing there. So this is remarkable. It's your field for six years, but in the seventh year, in fundamental ways, it's not your field anymore. The Shemitah suspends some of the essential rights of private property. You open your field up, everybody comes in, rich, poor, old, young, animals, people, then they all eat and they all meet in your field equally and on the same terms. I think it's very important that, uh, that to note that this comes out immediately after the commandment not to uh, uh, oppress the gear, the stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You probably know that this is an injunction that occurs, I think, 36 times in the Torah, not to oppress the stranger because you are strangers in the lands of Egypt. And, and so this juxtaposition locates the laws of Shemitah squarely in the Torah's concern for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. That in the seventh year, you open up your fields so everybody, and especially those who don't have fields, can come and share with what you have. So that's very briefly the first source on Shemitah from Parshat Mishpatim. Second source on Shemitah comes from Parshat Baha, uh, next week's Parsha as it happens. And, uh, and again in the English, this is what Parshat Baha teaches us. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you enter the land that I assigned to you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of the Lord. Six days you shall, uh, years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, the Sabbath of the Lord. You shall not prune, sow or prune, or feed your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. <laughs> but you may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. You, your your male and female slaves, the hired number of bound laborers who live with you, and your cattle and your beasts in your land may eat of its yield. So what's this source teaching us from Baha over and above what we learned in Pashat Mishpatim? I think the emphasis here is, is not so much on those who work the land as on the land itself. Several times in this passage, we learned the land shall rest. It's not just enough that you rest, but the land should rest. The land should be able to rest, renew, and restore itself uh, in the Shemitah in, 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 in period. I think what this is teaching us is that the land, the earth, is not just a resource to be exploited by us. It's not just a thing to be, uh, you know, to be, to be mined and used and overused for our purposes, but it is, it is uh, the, the land, is an entity and it's a being with its own needs, and you might say with its own with its own rights. Uh, that it's not just an adjunct to our prosperity. It's not just a resource for us to, to to use for our own benefit, but we have a duty to steward the land and let the land rest, renew, and it store itself, uh, uh, in order uh, that it should get it should have the rest that it needs. That's, I would say, the, uh, the emphasis of the second source, the, that the land also needs to rest. The third source from Parshat uh, um, A in, uh, in, in Devarim, Tetvav, talks about the remission of debts. Uh, and again, skipping to the English, this is what uh, Parshat A teaches us. Every seventh year, she will practice remission of debts. This shall be the nature of the remission. Your creditor, shall remit the due that he claims from his fellow, he shall not done. I think that's kind of an archaic English word, which means sort of aggressively try and collect your loan. Uh, you shall not done his fellow or kinsman for the remission proclaimed is of the Lord, is of the Lord. So what's this teaching us? It's teaching us that every seven years, we have to let, if we've lent money to somebody, we just have to let it go. Right? Remarkable, but this is what the Torah is teaching. You, know, you can you lend money, and the first, the seventh, the sixth, uh, up to the sixth year, you can get your money, ask for your money back, and uh, and be repaid for it. But with the end of the seventh year, the shemitah year, you just have to let it go. The word shemitah itself means l'shamet, means to let go. So this movement of just opening up your hand, 
letting go of your grasp and your hold on what you thought of as yours, your money, and, and leave it. Uh, now, to be sure, it's a good thing. It's, uh, the rabbi saw it as a praiseworthy thing. If, uh, if the person to you lent money wants, to, wants to, uh, to, uh, to pay it back anyway, but he's under no obligation to do so. He absolutely does not have to, and you may not, uh, you may not, um, you may not demand the money back. Finally, uh, if we're skipping almost to the end of this passage, it's, um, it's fascinating the way the Torah ends this. It says, beware lest you harbor the base thought the seventh year, the year of remission is approaching, so that your mean to your needs, the king's may give him nothing. He'll cry out to the Lord against you and your 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 incurred guilt. Give to him readily and have no regrets when you do so. For in return, the Lord your God will bless you in all your efforts and all your undertakings. Torah is saying something remarkable. It's saying, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, so the sixth year comes along and some poor guy comes along and asks, asks you to lend him money. And, and you're thinking, you're thinking, what, like, seriously, I'm going to lend him money when I know that the next year, the next year is going to come along, the Shemitah year, I'm never going to see it again. I, I'm really going to do that. And the Torah says, yes, you're really going to do that. The Torah is saying, I know this is hard. I know this whole business of Shemitah is really difficult. It challenges you. It challenges your greed. It challenges your possessiveness. It challenges your acquisitiveness. It challenges the sense that your possessions are inalienably your possessions. And yet you have to be challenged in that way. And even though it's hard, even though it goes against the grain, you have to be willing to let go of your loan and, uh, and lend to the poor person anyway, even knowing that you may very well not get it back. And this actually, to the best of my knowledge, Shemitah is the only mitzvah in the Torah about, uh, about which the Torah does this. It says it enters into the, the mind and the thoughts of a person who's contemplating uh, keeping this mitzvah and says, I know this is difficult for you, but you have to do it anyway. And in, in fact, the Torah does this about Shemitah not once, but twice, not just here, but also in Parshat Baha. In Parshat Baha, it gets into the thoughts of the person who's, who's thinking, well, how are we not going to plow the land? How are we not going to work the land in the Shemitah? What are we going to eat? And the Torah says, I know you're thinking, what are you going to eat? But know that I will give my blessing to the land in the sixth year so that you will have enough to eat for the seventh and eighth years. The, uh, I just wanted to add this, uh, this short passage from Parshat Bukhukotai, the, uh, the passage which is the Torah reading for the week after next. Uh, because, you know, Shemitah is not something that we talk about very much. It's not really a big part of contemporary Judaism. You know, despite the efforts of, you know, the people I was talking about and, you know, the activists who are trying to be, but in the Torah, it's incredibly important. It's really hard to overemphasize how important and how central Shemitah was for the, the, the worldview of the Torah and the Tanakh as a whole. Right? The, 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 in Parsha Bukhukotai, in the passage of the Tochacha, the curses, the Torah says as follows talking about, about your exile from the land. And then it says, then when you're in exile, shall the land make up for its Sabbath years throughout the time that it's desolate. And when you're in the land of your enemies, then the land shall rest and make up for its Sabbath, seventh years, its Sabbath years. Throughout the time it's desolate, it shall observe the rest that it did not observe in your Sabbath years while you were dwelling upon it. What the Torah is saying is that, is that while you're in the purpose of exile, one of them, at least, is that the, the, is for the land to make up for all of the Sabbath years, all of the Shemitah years, which you didn't keep properly when you were in the land. From which Chazal, the rabbis, take the very short, the short but logical step of saying that it is because we didn't ignore, we did because we ignored Shemitah and didn't keep it properly, that we were exiled in Shabbat 31a. Uh, Exile, the punishment for exile, for, for ignoring Shemitah is, is exile. And this theme is repeated throughout the Tanakh. Now, Jeremiah says you're going to be exiled because you haven't kept Shemitah. And when they come back from ex uh, exile in the book of Nehemiah and they reseal the covenant, the Brit, 
Shemitah is one of the handful of mitzvot on which the, the Brit is rededicated and reconsecrated. So what I think we get from all these passages is, is, this, is, is, is the clear conviction that Shemitah is no fringe mitzvah. It's not peripheral to Judaism. It's absolutely central to the conditions, the terms and conditions under which the land of Israel is granted to the Jewish people. If you keep Shemitah, then good. If not, then the rabbi said you actually forfeit the conditions under which uh, under which the, the 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 land is granted to you. So so that you know really invites us to to try and understand what is so important, what is so fundamental, what are the values underlying this mitzvah and uh, these mitzvah, and, and, and what really is it about? What would it mean to uh, to really and truly and fully fulfill the mitzvah the mitzvah of shemitah? So to sum up what Shemitah is about, according to the Bible, it's, it's a suspension of the laws of private property. It's a holiday for the land. It's a remission on debt. It's a chance for, 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 for debtors to have another chance and to get be released from the shackles of debt, which have entrained and trapped them uh, for six years, and, and to actually get to make a new start in their life. In short, it's a complete really a complete upending of the economic system as we know it it's a suspension and of the uh, of the of of the laws of the free market and private property in many fundamental ways and 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 a challenge to the whole economic system given that and given what we said about shemitah being so difficult and so challenging it's not hardly surprising that a lot of the history of shemitah has been about well, how do we actually do this in the real world? How do we negotiate these, these incredibly difficult and demanding uh, set of mitzvot? Uh, and how do we actually make it real in terms of uh, in terms of the exigencies of uh, of economic uh, of economic life? So, yeah, there's a lot of history to tell there, uh, but I want to actually skip 1,800 years of it and uh, and take us forward to the um, to the uh, the beginning of the return of uh, of Jews to to Eretz Israel to the land of Israel in the 1880s because this is where you know this is where the rubber it's hit, hit, rubber meets the road in terms of can we make Shemitah uh, real in uh, in a renewed Jewish country so it was really hard to do that the the initial agricultural pioneers in the 1880s that were came and tried to make a living from agriculture. Most of them were religious Jews. And to be honest, they weren't great at farming. Uh, they suffered terribly from hunger and thirst and malaria and terrible rates of uh, infant mortality. Many of them, you, you go to the cemeteries of those, those initial, uh, initial settlements in Zichron Yaakov and Mechavia and Yesud Hamala, and you see you know, terrible things. You see families who lost three, five, six, even 12 children. Right? Really extraordinary self-sacrifice and which, uh, which these people went through. And then Shemitah came along. And the first Shemitah year after, they, after the, the return of the first Aliyah was 1888 to 1889. And these people were barely hanging on as it is. And they think like, what, like, really? We're gonna stop work and not do anything in the Shemitah year? Like that's crazy. And well, we'll, you know, we'll starve or we'll have to sell our land or we'll have to go back to Russia or we'll you know, lose, God forbid, even more children. How are we going to do this? So they were really, really at a loss to know what to do because they were traditional, they were religious, they wanted to keep Shemitah. And at the same time, it just seemed overwhelming and impossible to do that. <clears throat> so what happened? You know, they, uh, they appealed to the, uh, the great rabbinical authorities in Europe for... Uh, for, 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 for some help, for advice on what to do. And the answer that came back was, well, this is what you can do. And you know how uh, before Pesach, you know, Jews can, uh, can sell their chametz in a sort of temporary and fictitious way to non-Jews, so they don't have to bear the economic loss of destroying all their chametz? Well, you can do something like that with Shemitah. What you can do is you can, sort of on a temporary and fictitious kind of way, 
uh, sell the land to non-Jews during the Shemitah year. And, and with that, you'll be able to continue to work your land. So they said, okay, and uh, thanks very much. But the rabbi said, ah, but just this once, just this once, because things are really hard for you. So they said, thanks very much. And that's what nearly all of them did. In fact, there was one farming settlement, uh, Muscaret Batia, which didn't want to do that. And they actually somehow or other in that Shemitah year and ever since kept Shemitah uh, properly. They actually stopped working. I don't know how they managed to do it, but they, they did it. They said, you know, we've come back to the land of Israel to fulfill the commandments fully and properly, and that's what we're going to do. But everybody else took advantage of this, you know, this legal fiction, which the rabbis enabled them, enabled them to do. Then the next Shemitah year came along, and things weren't really any better. So they said, okay, you can do this again, but just this once. And then the next Shemitah year, and the same thing. And then the next Shemitah year was 1909-1910. And then the chief rabbi of, uh, of Jaffa and the surrounding settlements was Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, like the, the hero of, of, of our story. And Rav Cook was different from a lot of the great rabbi, the rabbis of his time in a number of ways. But in this way in particular is relevant for our story. And that is that he really, really loved the agricultural pioneers who were building the land of Israel at that time. Now, a lot of them by this point were not religious anymore. There'd been another wave of immigration called the Second Aliyah, mostly made up of secular socialist uh, uh, pioneers. And most of the, uh, the great rabbis at the time looked at these people and said, and said you know, these, are, these are heretics. They, you know, they don't believe in God and they don't keep Shabbat and they you know, don't eat kosher, a lot of them. And, uh, and you know, they're God denying and trafe eating. And, you know, they're not, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not my partners. Ralph Cook took a very different view. He didn't, he didn't ignore or overlook the fact that they were you know, secular and often didn't believe in God and didn't keep Shabbat. But he looked beyond that. He looked deeper than that. And he saw their extraordinary self-sacrifice uh, on behalf of uh, for the Jewish people and the land of Israel. Uh, and he saw the remarkable work they were doing. And he said, these are, these are my partners. These are my brothers and my sisters. I'm with them. Uh, I'm, the work they're doing is holy work, and I want to help them do it. And, uh, and because of that, Ralph Cook wanted, to, you know, wanted to, to, to help secure and renew Jewish settlement in the land of Israel in any way he could. And so, so he saw that the situation was still precarious for them, and they still needed a solution for, uh, for the Shemitah year. And so he wrote this remarkable book, Shabbat Haaretz, which he wrote in, um, in, just, uh, in just a week, 120-page halachic work. Um, and in, what he did in that book was to make the argument for, for the selling of the land of Israel during the Shemitah year to enable people to, uh, to continue working the land and to put that on a, a firm halachic footing. A firm legal footing, and it was really one of the most, one of the most boldest, most courageous, and creative pieces of halachic argumentation and reasoning in certainly in modern Jewish history. Said it's 120 pages of uh, of halachic argument, but I'll, I'll you know I'll try and summarize the essentials of what Ralph Cook did there in uh, in in four points. There are essentially four, four, four pillars to Ralph Cook's argument. The first was, I'm going to do, I'll do this quickly. And if there's any questions you'd like to elaborate anything, then please do raise them in the question period. The first thing Ralph Cook said, did was to argue that Shemitah in our time is of rabbinic uh, uh, force, Midorabanan as it's called, and not of direct Torah authority, Midoraita as it's called. And as, as, a, as a rabbinic law, it has less, uh, less force and less authority, and therefore there's more room for flexibility. 
The second poor thing that Ralph Cook did was, was to argue that uh, non-Jewish ownership of the land actually does uproot its, uh, its holiness from the point of view of uh, the observance of Shemitah. So you might, if you think about it, it's not obvious that it would, you know, you buy it, you, you buy the land, you buy it, sell the land. Maybe that does nothing to the inherent holiness of the holy status of the land of Israel, and therefore does nothing you know, to shift the obligation to observe Shemitah. And so the second part of Ralph Cook's argument was to say, actually, it does. Actually, it does uproot the holiness of the land of Israel from the point of view of obligation to observe Shemitah. The third thing he did was to argue that you actually can sell land to non-Jews in the land of Israel, because there's a biblical prohibition in, uh, in uh, Devarim, the book, chapter 7, Lotah Hanembam, which the rabbis in Tractate of Vodah Zohar, page 28, interpreted to mean that you actually cannot sell land to Jews in the land of Israel. Uh, and, and so many rabbis at the time argued that this, this whole business was a non-starter because of that. You can't do it, full stop. And, and Rav Cook argued against that on a number of grounds, and the most uh, fundamental being that the non-Jews today in the land of Israel are not the kind of non-Jews that this applied to. This was about idol worship. Idol worship. This was about not giving idolaters a foothold in the land of Israel. And Rav Cook ordered the certainly Muslims and also Christians today are not idol worshippers, uh, and therefore this business simply does not apply to them. Um, and incidentally, in parenthesis, you know, the issue has come up in uh, in. I think I'll leave it in parenthesis actually and uh, move on to the next point. The finally. He argued, his argument was about, well, do we even believe that legal fictions are legitimate in Jewish law? Because it, it was clear to everybody that this is kind of a, it's a dodge, it's a loophole, it's, you know, everybody understood what's going on here. You know, you're using a loophole to get around a biblical commandment, even if it's today it's a rabbinical commandment, so it's just to avoid having to keep Shemitah. And is this even legitimate? And so, so the final part of Ralph Cook's argument was to say, you know, yes, it is, and, and to cite this uh, slew of precedents about how, you know, the rabbis and the halakha authorities do allow legal loopholes like this. But the whole thing is, you know, what's the meta-halachic value which, which justifies using loopholes? And for Ralph Cook was absolutely clear that the value couldn't have been greater. Now, for him, the most important things in the universe, literally, were at stake. That, that this was about, about the, uh, the resettlement of the land of Israel. This was about the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the rebirth of a Jewish country, which Rav Cook eventually believed would develop over who knows how long a period of time into a messianic reality. And literally, it was of immense a cosmic importance that the, the settlers should continue and be able to do their thing. And so, so for, for, for Ralph Cook, the meta-halachic arguments for actually allowing this loophole could not possibly have been greater. So that, that in a nutshell, was what Ralph, Cook, Ralph Cook's argument for temporarily avoiding Shemitah. I don't think he imagined that temporarily would last for another 120 years, but but in fact, it did, you know, and even today, this remains the way in which most, from a halachic perspective, in terms of agriculture, in terms of what we eat and we don't want to eat, the way most people observe, or perhaps more accurately, don't observe uh, Shemitah in Israel today. But apart from doing, from making this argument about how we could avoid Shemitah, Ralph Cook did something else and something which might seem to be and perhaps was in direct contradiction to 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 this argument because what Ralph Cook uh, introduced this book Shabbat Haaretz with this beautiful lyrical and poetic introduction describing what Shemitah could be one day when we actually do it when we actually embrace it now, if you think that he was, he would have cooked, wanted us to avoid it indefinitely, one couldn't 
that could be more hardly be more mistaken. So I've put in here, hit here two two passages from Ralph Cook's beautiful introduction to, to the land of Israel. So he says in the first passage, now in 1909, the Shemitah year has arrived, according to the reckoning that we have, owing to the poor situation of our settlements in the land. We'll have to make do with the temporary expedient that was endorsed some time ago by the greatest authorities of the generation who understood deeply the situation of the settlement in our holy land. They had a penetrating sense of what it could become in the future and knew not to belittle its smallness because they understood that plowing these first furrows in our land could be a gateway of hope for our people and portend the growth of salvation that came from the land. They realized that their historic obligation to smooth the path of the new settlements and as not much as possible not to let the mitzvah that connected the land be obstacles. God doesn't make tyrannical and unreasonable demands of his creatures. The circumstances that allowed us to be lenient regarding mitzvah pertaining to the whole community when there's a likelihood of significant financial loss or in a temporary situations of acute need are all compounded in this case to an extent unparalleled in the annals of legal questions that have arisen throughout our lengthy exile. So you know, we have Cook saying there, it's not great, it's not ideal that we have to use this loophole, but the arguments, I hope it's only temporary, and it's just in order that, that, uh, that the, uh, the Jewish settlement in the land can survive and gain a foothold, uh, and the arguments for doing so are absolutely overwhelming. And then he goes on to describe you know, what Shemitah will be, will one day be, when we no longer have to avoid it, when when we're able to, to, to embrace it in all its fullness and all its beauty. And so th this is one, uh, just one paragraph from a many page long pian that Ralph Cook sings to, to, to what Shemitah will one day be. It says, it'll be a year of peace and quiet where there are no tyrants or taskmasters. He shall not oppress his fellow or kinsmen for the remission, remission proclaimed is of the Lord. A year of equality and relaxation in which the soul may expand towards the uprightness of God who sustains all life with loving kindness. A year when there's no private property, no standing on one's rights, and a godly peace will pervade all that breathes. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. But you may eat whatever the land will produce during its Sabbath. You, your male and female slaves, the hired and bond laborers who live with you and your cattle and the beasts on your land may eat all its yield. Pernickety claims to private property will not profane the holiness of the produce of the land during this year. And the urge to get rich, which is stimulated by trade, will be forgotten, as it says, for you to eat, but not for your trade. A spirit of generosity will rest on all. God will bless the fruit of the land for you to eat and not your loss. Human beings will return to a natural state of health so that they will not need healing for sicknesses. So it's most remarkable, almost unbelievable, claim that Ralph Cook makes, which mostly befall us when the balance of life is destroyed and our lives are distanced from the rhythms of nature. For you to eat, but not to make medicine, not to use as bandages. A Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all life. It will be a year of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath of the Lord. Now, Ralph Cook's saying in that, in that last part that, that our, yeah, our lives and our bodies, physically speaking, get out of balance by the, the six years of uh, rushing and running and striving and, 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 and working and overworking to, and exploiting that, you know, that characterizes so much of our economic life. And that makes us sick, he's saying. And he actually suggests that taking a year to return to a sense of, uh, of balance and equilibrium will actually restore a state of health. I find it personally both hard to take this absolutely literally but also hard not to be impressed by you know, Ralph Cook's understanding that, you know, that, that health and, and, and inner equilibrium are, you know, from a holistic point of view, absolutely fundamental to, to, uh, to, to human physical health and well-being. So this is just a, a fragment of Ralph Cook's vision uh, for the social, economic, and ecological renewal that could, could happen he believed would happen when we embrace Shemitah fully. And what I want to say is that, so Ralph Cook did two contradictory things in Shabbat Haaretz. He said, on the one hand, this is how we can avoid Shemitah for now, because many people need to. But on the other hand, 
this is how beautiful it'll be when we will embrace Shemitah fully in the future. And you can see how that's a very unstable position to take. On the one hand, avoid. On the other hand, but it's going to be so great when we don't have to avoid it anymore. And what's one way, I think, I think a correct way of, un uh, of understanding what's actually happened in the last 15 years, where all these creative and uh, ways of realizing the social justice values of Shemitah have emerged is that that unstable equilibrium has broken down. The people have finally said, said look, you tell us how great it's going to be. It's uh, when we actually do Shemitah, let's do it. Let's stop avoiding it, Ravka. Let's actually put into practice your introduction, which says how beautiful it'll be when we finally come to embrace Shemitah. So what's been going on? Well, it's an amazing, amazing plethora of initiatives that have been going on in, uh, in, in Israel and also in America, in the United States, largely under the, in the inspiration of Chazon, but how to actually make the, uh, the values of Shemitah real. So for example, the last time around, there was a successful initiative to actually remit the debts of several tens of thousands of seriously indebted Israeli families uh, by remitting some of their debts and working with, with financial management NGOs to, to help people manage their finances better so that they could avoid getting in that situation into the, uh, in the future. And the banks and insurance companies and utility companies actually participated in that, uh, in that initiative. Uh, there's been, been initiatives to figure out, well, what does it mean to actually do Shemitah in, in a high-tech-based society? If, if only 2% you know, of people work in agriculture and the main drive of the economy is high-tech, how do you actually put these values into practice in, uh, in, uh, you know, in companies? So you know, there are a lot of you know, creative and really fascinating initiatives in that direction, some of which I was actually involved in when I worked in Energia Global. Happy to go into that in the, in the question and answer session. Um, the, this time and last time, there's been a, just a beautiful project called Shat Hashmita by uh, Rav Yosef Tzvi Rimon. Uh, and his insight was, well, if Shmita is really about giving up control about our land, because land was the fundamental source of our wealth. But if it's land is for most people not, not the fundamental source of our wealth, what is? And his answer was, was it's our time. You know, our time is what we most most people use in order to in order to create wealth, and so and so the an actual meaningful actualization of Shemitah today is is to give up your some of your time to volunteer and donate some of your time for free to other people. So you had you know, doctors and lawyers and psychologists and therapists and architects and social workers, all kinds of people, putting their time into a time bank, and anybody you needed could uh, could draw on it. And so on, and uh, just a just a remarkable outpouring of uh, of creative ways of making these values real in some way, and it's it's still small, and it's still you know, it's still not it's not the way most people are thinking about and observing Shemitah today, but but it's something which I believe is you know is is gaining force and gaining momentum as Shemitah, every Shemitah year that goes by. Now, I want to finish just in a couple of minutes by, by trying to place uh, Ralph Cook's thinking about Shemitah in a larger theological or like eco-theological context. Uh, because for Ralph Cook, I believe, his thinking about Shemitah was part of a much bigger picture. And the bigger picture had to do with the way Rav Cook understood Ta'ameha mitzvot, the reasons for the mitzvot. So many Jewish thinkers have given reasons for mitzvot, most famously Maimonides, the Rambam. And Rav Cook had a lot of respect for Maimonides, but he also criticized him in, in this area too. On the following grounds, Rav Cook said, Maimonides, many of Maimonides reasons for the mitzvot had to do with the past and the distant past of that. They had to do with 
with idolatrous people and stuff they did. They had to do with things that happened in the temple. They had to do with things that happened a long time ago. And the problem with the past is that the more time goes on, the further and further away the past gets. And so reasons for mitzvah, which are rooted in the past, inherently, Rav Cook, become less and less compelling and less and less relevant as time goes on. And so Rav Cook, very relevantly and radically, said, I believe that the, the meaning of so many mitzvot that we have is rooted in the future, not in the past, but in the future. That we are heading towards, he believed, uh, a world of uh, um, ultimately a messianic world of universal values when, um, when we will understand that the ethics of the Torah are meant not just to, to, for the flourishing of the Jewish people, but also for the, uh, for the flourishing of the whole world. And Rav Kook believed that the mitzvot are like windows of light shining from that future world into our present and guiding us step by step towards that future. So very famously, Rav Kook understood the laws of kashrut in those way, in that, in that light. Rav Kook believed in the future, we're all going to be vegetarian and you know, we're all going to return to that sense of, of embracing and of a harmony between humans and all forms of life. And we're not going to take the life of animals or food anymore. Rav Kook himself was a vegetarian, except he ate a little bit of meat on Shabbat. He said the laws of kashrut are about training us and leading us towards that vegetarian future. And many people would say that you know, we're now 100 years too further on towards that future uh, than Ralph Cook was. And we can understand even clearer than he could, well, you know, the environmental and the humanitarian and the, and the, uh, you know, the animal rights arguments for being vegetarian today. And that, that, you know, that future is all the more compelling to us now than it was 100 years ago. And Ralph Cook understood Shemitah in these same terms. Now, he wrote his great essay about the reasons for the mitzvot, for the mitzvot exactly at the same time as he wrote Shabbat Haaretz. And if you compare these two texts, and this we can't do it now, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it, you'll see that for Ralph Cook, Shemitah and the related jubilee in the future have universal significance. That Shemitah is a year of merging of our consciousness with the earths and that that we and the earth have, have both rest in the uh, in the in the in the, in the, in the sabbatical year and this is a kind of a a kind of a merging of our consciousness and the and the and the earth's consciousness that that for Ralph Cook believed that the jubilee in the future will be something which is observed by all of uh, by all of humanity and therefore it was so, we see why it was so important for him that we may find some way to still keep the laws of Shemitah, even in some limited sense, to now, today, because he really believed that these laws are about teaching us, guiding us towards this universal ethical future in which these laws of Shemitah and the Jubilee turn out to have universal relevance for all of humanity and for all of living things as well. And so you know, the, the, the future which, uh, which Rav Cook envisaged for Shemitah is, uh, is much bigger even than loan forgiveness programs, and it's bigger than, uh, uh, than pro the initiatives about Shemitah in high tech. It's a really about a, a, a vision of universal emancipation with, uh, for all people and all of humanity. Uh, something <laughs> that I can't fully justify today. But, you know, since we're only together for, for a short period of time this evening, I just wanted to put it out there. And if you want to learn more, then, um, then I can recommend a good book about it. Um, so I'll stop there and I'm very happy to, um, to, to hear any, uh, any questions, comments, Okay, responses. great, thank you so much. Let's take off the screen share, if you will. Um, yeah. And we'll move to gallery mode. 
Um, and I see someone has their hands up. Uh, there's not a name there, but she can introduce Irene. herself. Irene. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello, you did you. It's Irene from Broughton Park. How are Hello, you? Hello, how are you? Right. Surely, would you mind telling you, Didier, he's got to send me this book because I'm doing a review and I live in the UK and I first met you, Didier, at Cambridge when he was so kind when I had my own book launch on Ibn Ezra. That's another time. But I write for a website that gets millions of readers, including a lot of Christians and rabbis and people like that. And I really do want to review this book in time for the Queen's Jubilee, you did you? when the Prince of Wales has said we've all got to plant a tree. Now, apart from that, you perhaps don't know, but you know we had COP26 in Glasgow. So I borrowed an older version of your book from Nigel, you know, Nigel's mother who lives around the corner from me, another Bichette thing. And she got it back from me because she thought you were gonna send me one. And I then told the former Archbishop of Canterbury, who was speaking all over Glasgow and to the United Nations head, I am not joking, at Cambridge, about what is special about Judaism um, for the Jubilee and for green issues, for ecology. And around this time, Hazan asked our group to partner. I don't know if you're aware. Um, and I had to write a guest letter, right? So the upshot was, I didn't know all this. I just quoted Rashi on Bereshit about this, uh, you know, subject and the first fruits, quoted from your book, quoted also Hillel Prosbul as well. And to my amazement at Glasgow Cathedral, don't forget it was being held in Glasgow, not a pro-Jewish place at all. He spent the whole time talking to the charity Christian Aid, which hates Jews, about basically what you've said. And he, he, he said, this great scholar, I think he meant me. I didn't know who he was talking about. And it was all <laughs> rashy stuff from your book. And then he went on to meet this Guterres, you know, the United Nations Purse Secretary General at, a, at a, um, a sort of five or six person thing in Cambridge where he had been, as you know, head of a college. And because uh, he's very brilliant. And he said, the Judaism, yes. Judaism <laughs> has, has the answer through the Jubilee year. And he, because he told me afterwards and I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that, you know, meeting you did you again, Nigel, I don't know if you know Nigel from Hazan, um, you know, he was the head can of Hazan. Can, can I just, can I just, uh, I'm amazed that you, by what you say, Irene, and, and very yeah. grateful yeah. for telling me. And, yeah. and, and, and I think that that's just a, a, a remarkable instance of what, what I could believe that, uh, yeah, yeah that and ultimately, ultimately the Jubilee year would have universal resonance for, for yeah, yeah, but even more, he's now looked at the two two poems by Rav Cook. This is Rowan Williams for a new poetry book on religion. It'll be mainly Christian. It's a Christian publisher, but he's asked me to recommend ten Jewish poets. So I didn't do all the Holocaust stuff. There was perhaps one, 20th century, also Israeli ones, and also stuff on these issues. And he's done an amazing um, take on Rav Cook, right? Which I want to put in with the review of your book. So you did it without being overly okay, messy. Okay, I, I, I will, I will, I will <laughs> nag the uh, publisher. Just to get them to send an assigned <laughs> copy, and 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 the website will be thrilled. And I mean, I don't want to overdo it. You know, I'm quite old now, but I really do think that what you have to say, because your translation skills are so brilliant, if you don't mind me saying so, because I'm a member of the Israel Translators Association, your translation skills are so wonderful from your previous version of the book that I really think it'll be read and read and please get them to send it me. Sorry that I took I, so long. I, I, <laughs> thank you so much, Irene. Thank okay, you. let's hear from someone else, thank you. Rav Yadidia, one question I have for you is, um, we, we, we state very um, often, as you did, that it, there's an environmental value to letting the land rest. But I don't actually understand the science behind that. Like how valuable is it to the land to not be worked for a year? And what is that agricultural value? How does that work? Um, well, I'm not a big expert on this uh, myself. But my understanding is that uh, that the uh, by by not letting the, by not ha by letting the land uh, not work for you, it, we was restore uh, nitrogen content to the land and uh, and other nutrients. Um, 
which are the nitrogen being provided by when in you know in agriculture in industrial agriculture by uh, artificial fertilizers and uh, and organic and sustainable modes of farming uh, are based on crop rotation in which in which uh, you don't farm plant the same thing in the same piece of land year after year after year but uh, but you plant different things in the same land over a period of, over a cycle of years and also you let the land rest so i'm not i i can't i can't give a really you know convincing uh, explanation of that but uh, but i do i do think that there's uh, you know there's there is good science behind it and uh, you know, and many you know, Jewish sustainable farmers have embraced Shemitah as uh, you know, as part of the uh, the craft and the toolkit of uh, of, of uh, sustainable farming. I mean, I think that you know, on a on a on a broader level, I mean, we we've seen the environmental power of keeping a kind of Shemitah in a remarkable way during during uh, during the, uh, the 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 COVID period. And I think that, yeah, you know, the idea that you could actually close down the economy for a period of time, a few months or a year, was just unthinkable until until we actually did it. And it was it was incredibly hard and incredibly painful, and you know, not you know not idyllic or, uh, um, and wonderful at all, but. It was an experience of what happens to the world when you just close off the motors of economic activity. For and what I think many people experienced was was the extraordinary renewal of nature uh, around us. That uh, you know, we stopped flying and we stopped driving for a number of months, and the sky became bluer and the birds' song became louder and clearer, and you know. And animals, which you know, all kinds of exotic wildlife you know, came into, ventured into city centres, and uh, and 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 just we just experienced in a remarkable way the connection between our frantic overactivity uh, and pollution, and uh, and the degradation of the natural world, and on the other hand, our ceasing our activity. And the renewing and restoration of the natural world. Most people actually felt that, and you know, with our own senses. And so, so you know, so beyond you know the environmental impact of actually ceasing to work the land for a year, I think we felt the broader uh, environmental uh, impact of um, dialing down our, our economic activity more broadly. On uh, on our natural environments. Okay, so um, you did another question I have for you um, in our in our just in in our last minute is there's there's a bunch of competing values that the value of supporting Arab workers, the value of supporting Jewish workers, the value of letting the land rest, um, you know, uh, the value of kind of like the the you know just obedience to God, so to speak. Like, how do you decide which of these are kind of a top priority? Mm. And, and just like on the practical level, as folks know, if you're in Israel right now, you can buy nochri, you can buy Gentile stuff, you can buy oats or beitin, you can buy this heter mechira, you, have a, you can buy Mitzrayim, there's all these different ways you can buy where you're buy, shopping with your values, like how do you choose one over the other in your view? I, I, yeah, I'm going to give a, a kind of a cop-out answer, I'm afraid, actually, and I, I, I'm going to say, yeah, I, I'm not going to tell people how to, how to prioritize. I, uh, I think you know, we're just at the beginning of reclaiming the values of Shemitah you know, after a long time when they were sort of dormant and, and, and irrelevant. And, and, and there's a plethora of different ways of, uh, of, uh, of doing it. And, you know, and I'm happy that anybody is you know, struggling with Shemitah and trying to embrace and make these values real in their lives and in our collective life again. And uh, I don't want to dictate to anybody about, about how they do that. So, as I said, that's, you know, that's a cop-out value, but I really, you know, I really believe there's a lot of experimentation, there's a lot of trial and error, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of new initiatives happening around this. And, um, 
you know, I'm happy to see a thousand flowers bloom. Amazing, amazing. Well, thanks so much for what you did, yeah. We hope everyone will pick up this uh, important book um, and enjoy that. Pam posted it twice up there. And uh, we look forward to continuing to learn with you throughout the week. Have a great night in Israel and a great day in America and Canada. Thanks so much, everybody. Really enjoyed being with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.